we're, we're continuing on. Um, you'll see at the title uh, on your sheets, there's more to the story. Um, this whole thing, this whole series that we've been doing is just to show that, that the Old Testament is pointed to Christ. In a nutshell, and that's what the scripture teaches uh, Jesus uh, on the, on the day, night of his resurrection. Luke 24, he says that uh, Moses spoke about him, the prophets spoke about him, the Psalms spoke about him. He's in there. The, the Old Testament is, is types and shadows pointing to Christ. And, and we've done, you know, I, I, I think so far, as we went back through it the second time, I think we're up to almost 25, something like that. We've done different types and shadows. Um, so we're getting nearer towards the end, but we still have a few to go. And I think where we possibly may be going with this in the more of the story is to look at all the, the feasts and the festivals uh, the seven main ones that uh, the children of Israel were commanded to partake of. And each one of those symbolically points to Christ. Um, and tonight we're going to start with the first one of the summer festivals or the feasts, the Passover. And more than likely you've heard that term, you've heard uh, a little bit about the Passover, but, but there's a lot to the Passover, um, obviously as the number of your sheets would tell you. Um, and you, we could have went on for uh, all night long and all through the day and add, continue to add scripture because, um, you know, it's pretty amazing when it comes right out and tells us that the thing that we are looking at, the, the event that we're looking at, when scripture comes out right off the bat and says, Christ is this, that makes it, it takes a little bit of, well, is this really true? Or are you just kind of stretching this a little bit? No, we're not. And, and, one of the greatest examples we see on this is 1 Corinthians 5-7. It's on your handout there. Um, it says, clean out the old leaven. Um, it's under the Passover required a lamb, that third verse down. It says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Here is what it says. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So the, we have right off the bat proof, we have proof text to tell you that this Passover feast is going to be pointing to Christ. The, the, the things that they were commanded to do, these little nuances in here, the, the, the specific uh, nature of this uh, feast and this event is going to point to Christ. And it's pretty amazing when you start to look at it, uh, of the detail and the depth of this. And, and what makes the Passover so important is it's the first religious feast commanded, um, that God commanded for His people. And we're going to get into this a little bit, but it took place on Nisan 14th. That was the month that it was in. It was on the 14th of that month, um, and you can find that in Leviticus 23. There's a few. We'll get to these verses here in a little bit, uh, but it says it's to commemorate and remember God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt and showing them mercy um, as to those whom the blood was applied to. And the Passover is a type and shadow as it would point to the true Passover lamb, which we just read as Christ, uh, whom by his sacrifice and his blood... Uh, we would be set free, escape wrath and judgment. It's a big event. And, and um, so with that being said, I was thinking about what to do. I know we got a lot of pages, but I don't ever want to, um, I don't ever want to just skip on reading scripture because that's God's word. And my, ver my voice is not God's word. And my words are not his words. I'm trying to, uh, to explain them and to preach those words. But uh, there's nothing like just reading the words of God. And we won't read the whole chapter, but we'll go into a few um, big sections of it to try to get an understanding of what's going on here. And then we will just start working through all these points of how um, that the Passover and Christ are, are linked and how it's pointing to Christ. So 
in chapter 12 of Exodus, we're going to read down to verse 13, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to a few other places. But follow along with me here, just so you can kind of get a sense of what's happening. It says, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb, each, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor uh, nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man's, or man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat, you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So you can kind of get a sense of what's going on here. It talks about the day that it's supposed to be selected, the day it's supposed to be killed, what you're supposed to eat and how you're supposed to eat it. And, and there's some regulations there that he's talking about in those first 13 verses. Now, let's go and you'll see that the first 14 starts with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's the next feast that Israel is going to be partaking of. And it goes hand in hand with the Passover. And a lot of historians will actually run, them two, run the two together. And it almost looks like an eight-day festival or feast. But the first day is the Passover. Then it's followed by one full week of a Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that unleavened bread will represent Christ as well. So that'll be the next one we discuss. But we'll skip a lot of that tonight because you want to come back for the next one. And if we do it now, we definitely won't get done. And We'll have missed one for next time. So let's go down in that same um, chapter, chapter 12, and let's go um, verse 21 and kind of pick up on this theme a little bit of this lamb and the blood. And we pick this up in verse 21. It says, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. 
Okay, so you kind of see what's going on here. The blood of this lamb has to be applied to the door and the door posts, um, or it will result in death of the firstborn. And then they're supposed to do this uh, as a memorial uh, in, in the future. Uh, then well, let's go down into verse 42. Talking about the ordinances of the Passover. It says, It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out of the land of Egypt. This, is, this night is for the Lord, to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money. After you have circumcised them, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are to br not uh, to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised, and let, them, let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like the native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same laws apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. So we got to... Pretty good idea of what's going on here. A lot of verses. Again, well, chapter 13 tells us a lot, but we're going to stop right there and let's talk about this. One of the first things that we look and we have to see in this whole situation is it is focused around one thing. It's the lamb. You can't get around this fact. You can't have the Passover without the lamb. It's all about the lamb. The lamb is the central point. It's the central thing of the Passover, and we see this. And in Exodus 12, 3, where we were just at, it says that they're supposed to speak to the congregation of Israel. On the 10th of the month, they are to each take a lamb for themselves. According to their father's household, the lamb for each household. It's about the lamb. Now, we can go to the New Testament here, and we'll move briefly through this, but we see the same imagery of the lamb spoken about Christ. Right? We know that all these things in the Passover are going to be pointing to Christ, who would be the true fulfillment of this feast. John 1.29 says this, that John is standing there and he sees Christ coming by. And he says this in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knows. He knows who he is. He says, This is the Lamb. So we have the Passover lamb, the central, the central figure in the feast, and now we have Christ being identified by John in chapter 1 of John as the lamb. Uh, we talked about here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we already read it. It says, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. He's the Passover lamb. It is pointing to Christ. Christ, and there's many other verses in the Bible that talk about Christ being the lamb. The lamb that was slain, the lamb uh, that had come, it was about the lamb. So that's just kind of a, a, a right off the front. That's a basic one we can see. Uh, the Passover required the lamb. Christ is the lamb of God. So we don't have to do, go too deep into that. That one's pretty right there on the surface. We can see that. Then it goes to the next requirement. The lamb had to be a one-year-old male, unblemished lamb. Now, I heard somebody saying this, and I, I didn't put it on the sheet because I can't verify it. So I'm just telling you what I heard. You may know this. I don't know. But I, I, why one year old? 
Why did it have to be a one-year-old? And and I was listening to some guy, and he was trying to explain this, and he says that the way the ages of all this work, that a one-year-old uh, at this point would be pretty much in a prime of life. They, they could do everything they needed to do uh, and fulfill every purpose that needed to be done according to what the lamb needed to be done. And, and you look at this, and if that one-year-old lamb was, quote-unquote, in the prime of life, it's interesting. Again, this is not, I can't back this up. I couldn't find any of the sources, but I'm just telling you, some people that knew lambs, I guess. I don't know. But if the one-year-old does represent being in the prime of life or purposeful to the lamb, it's interesting because secular science has recently come out, and they have told us, they've studied this, they said, and they said they have come up with the age that human beings are at their peak prime age. And it's probably not what you think it may be. But it's interesting because this is the secular world who hates God. And with all their science and all their research, they came to say that the prime age in life would be 33. Now, isn't that interesting? Because by all biblical accounts, that Christ was 33 years old when he died. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Thank you for what it's worth. But what's also interesting about this in, in prime of life and ages is this, that, that in, in, the, in the old covenant and in, into in the priesthood, into these roles, you, you had to be 30 years old to be able to function as a priest. And how old was Christ when he began his ministry? He was 30 years old. I think that's amazing. The depths and the details of these stories. We also know that David was 30 years old when he became king. So it was no accident, it's no coincidence that here comes Christ and he starts his ministry. He starts and he starts to do the work of the father that sent him and he's 30 years old, which is the exact age you had to be to qualify you for priesthood in the Old Testament. We know that Christ is our high priest and David was 30 when he became king and Jesus is the king of all kings. They just intertwine all through the Bible and we see this one-year-old male, uh, kind of some, some significance there. But what about the unblemished? We, we, in our study of 1 Peter that we've been in, uh, we covered this just a, a few services ago. But the unblemished lamb, the importance of that was that they would look at it and it couldn't have any defect. It couldn't have any abnormality, couldn't have any birth defect, couldn't have any spots on it that were not uh, proper for that lamb. And what this represents is unmarred or sinless is what it would come to be qualified at when it comes to Christ. So we have this lamb that has to be a one-year-old lamb. We see that it, the lamb has to be, uh, it's a requirement, and we see that it has to be unblemished. Now, what's interesting here is we pick up verses like 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, and it says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood. And you, you're going to know the story that it's not just enough to have the lamb there. The lamb is going to have to die, and the blood of the lamb is going to have to be used. So we have this unblemished lamb that had to be the qualification of the lamb, and if it had one blemish, it, couldn't, it wasn't worthy to be the sacrificial lamb. It, it, it couldn't be in the Passover. One little blemish disqualified it. And if Christ has one blemish, one sin, then he's not, he can't go to the cross and he can't die. 
That's why his life had to be sinless. We've talked about this. Not only did he come to die, but he came to live. And in our study of Romans, we have labored on this so hard that we, we look to the cross and we look to his death and we say, thank you for dying. And yes, we should. However, his life was just as important because everything that he did, he met the full requirement of the law, which was perfection. See, if he comes and he just dies for our sin, then your sins are atoned for. But you don't have any righteousness. You don't have it. You, you got to have righteousness to enter heaven. And it is the righteousness of Christ that he lives out on this earth. Everything he did on his, in his earthly ministry for 33 years, he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And then those who are his and put faith in him, he takes that whole completion of the law, that perfect completion, and he imputes it to that person. That's where your righteousness comes from, is the perfect life of Christ. It's a mixture of his death and his life. And if he has one sin in any time of his 33 years, then you do not enter heaven. Simple as that. If Christ fails one time, if someone slanders him or hits him or mocks him and he, he sins one time, no single soul will ever enter heaven. We have to remember the perfect life of Christ and its importance because that perfection, that unblemished life is what is given to us in justification. But he says, we were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood. Now listen to this. As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's just jumping off the page. It's the lamb. It's the unblemished lamb. It's the blood of the unblemished lamb. And we see here in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that is the blood, unblemished blood, the precious blood of Christ, the lamb that we are redeemed by. Some other verses that say he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's just verse after verse. He's unblemished. He's spotless. He's sinless. And that was the requirement, one of the requirements of the Passover lamb that we find in Exodus 12. We also see something very interesting here that it says, and we, we've mentioned this before in some of our sermons, but we see that the Passover lamb was taken on the 10th of the month. And that's significant. This is, to me, this is one of the most amazing points of this whole thing. And I don't know why, but I just think this is amazing. It says that you're to take it on the 10th day of the month. And you're to keep it to the 14th day of the month. That's weird, right? Why wouldn't you just be able to inspect it in one day? So they would gather the lamb on the 10th of the month, 10th of Nisan. And then until the 14th of Nisan, they were to examine the lamb. They were to look at the lamb. They had to make sure that the lamb that they had chose had no spot, had no blemish, had nothing that would disqualify it from being sacrificed on Passover. Why is that interesting to me? And I'll tell you why it's interesting to me. We've said it before. But this also represents Christ. Because... He comes into Jerusalem on the Passion Week. It's the Lamb that is chosen. You know, when they come in, they say, Hosanna. 
glory to God. They know the Jews know who they're talking to and they know who they're talking about because that whole thing is referenced in Psalm 118 and it's about the Messiah. So this declaration that Hosanna is coming is referencing to the Jew and the Jew knows that this guy's claiming to be the son of God. And if you can see that in the Passover in the Old Testament, they would take the lamb and from the 10th to the 14th, they would examine it to make sure it's perfect and pure and had no spot. And that is what's happening when Christ comes in on Passion Week. He comes into Jerusalem. The lamb that was chosen comes in. And for the whole week, all eyes are on him, aren't they? He can't go anywhere. He goes to the temple. He, over, he, he goes and throw, overthrows the tables. He starts to examine people. He starts to engage with people. He starts to just do all these things that the Bible records that he did in this week. And if you could see this in a sense, what is happening is that the Passover lamb is being examined. It's being examined just like it did in the Old Testament. And if the Passover lamb is guilty of one thing, he's not worthy to be the Passover lamb. Isn't that cool? In the Old Testament, it's examined from the 10th to the 14th, and Christ would die on the 14th. And from the 10th to the 14th, in Jerusalem, he would be examined. And the final verdict would come down by Pilate himself. See, the Old Testament, they would look and say, this is, he's a, it's the lamb, it's a good lamb. There's no blemish. We can, we can sacrifice this lamb now. He has no blemish. And Pilate gave us that declaration of Christ. In John 19, verse 4, it says, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was examined, and so was the true Passover lamb. The whole week he was in Jerusalem, his life was examined, and Pilate gave the verdict. The only verdict he know how to give, the truth on this matter. He says, there's no fault in him. This lamb is perfect and pure. There's no fault. He's been examined like they did in the Old Testament. And guess what? He's no fault in him. What he's saying is this. The Passover lamb has been inspected. And he's perfect. He's worthy to be the Passover lamb. Pilate had no idea probably what he was saying. I find no fault in him. And if you could just set your mind back all those hundreds of years prior to when the children of Israel were getting ready to be led out of Egypt and they were to celebrate this Passover and they would do that for the years to come, that on that day of the Passover, when they would look at the lamb and say, it's good, that would come to fruition with Christ and Pilate. He was inspected. He was chosen. And here's something I think is pretty amazing. I want, you to, I want you to think about this. And we're going to get into it in a little bit. We know the blood is going to be applied. But who was inspected? It was the lamb. Not the people. Think about that just for a moment. How were the people in the house? We're going to, we're going to read about this here in a little bit. But each individual wasn't brought out and inspected to see if they were perfect or unblemished or holy. Because you know what you'd have done if you would have grabbed every human being and examined them to see if they were unblemished? It wouldn't take long. All condemned. None perfect, none righteous, no, not one. But the story doesn't say that they were all examined. 
It says the lamb was examined. And if the lamb was holy, and the lamb was spotless, and the lamb was worthy, then those who would be covered by his blood would be the same way. You see, when they came by the house, they didn't look in to see the people. They looked at the blood. And if the source of the blood was perfect, and it was holy, then that would be the state of everyone that would be covered and atoned by that blood. Never forget that. That when you fall and you have a day where you feel like you have blown it and you feel like you are not worthy to be called a child of God, remember this, the lamb was inspected and examined and considered worthy, not the people. What an amazing thought that is. It's about the lamb. The lamb was inspected, not the person. The worthiness of the lamb saved them, not the worthiness of themselves. The lamb was holy, so the people to whom the blood covered were holy. What was looked at was the blood of the lamb and not the worth of those inside the house. The lamb was examined. He was innocent. So are all who are in Christ because of him. That's what Colossians tells us in chapter 1, verse 22, that we are spotless and we are and blameless in the eyes of God because of his blood, not because of us. That's a small detail that I think we can't overlook. The lamb was inspected. The lamb was chosen not the people. We're moving right along. You can see the end in sight. <coughs> Here's the next thing that we have to be reminded of, and I think we overlook this. What was the purpose of the lamb? It was to avoid judgment. That was the whole point of what is going on here. The plagues that were, that were brought about, God says they were judgments. In Exodus 6.6, 6, he says this, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. These plagues are judgments. The point of the Passover lamb was to avoid the judgment that was coming on the people. And the Israelites were not exempt from this. You see, they were guilty of this as well. And the charge was of idolatry. You see, the Egyptians, and if you go and look into the, the plagues and the ten plagues, that they're for a purpose, they're for a reason. You'll see that each one, like the, the frogs and the locusts, you see all the things in the blood and, and the Nile and all that. You see all those things that were brought about on the people of Egypt. Each one of those correlates with a god that they served or they thought was deity. So whatever their God was supposed to be in charge of, God says, okay, I got you. I'll show you who the real God is. So every plague is being distributed as a result and a judgment of idolatry against the true and the living God. That's the judgments that are coming. It's idolatry. And, and we can't say that, well, the people of Israel, they, the, the Jew, they, weren't, they were innocent. They, let me tell you this. They had to have the blood applied too, or they would have died the same fate. The firstborn would have died. Listen to what it says here. Um, Exodus 12, 12 says the same thing. It says, uh, for I will go through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. It says in Joshua 24, 14, it says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You see, idolatry is going on with the children of Israel even in Egypt. 
They are guilty of this. They're not getting a free pass. They had, to, they had to do the same thing to live. The firstborn was only saved if they had the blood applied. It, it, it's judgment that's coming. What's the, what's the first commandment that God gives us on Mount Sinai? You shall have no other gods before me. That's what's at stake. It's, it's idolatry. And judgment is coming. That's the point of the Lamb. To avoid the judgment that's coming. Passover lamb and his blood was for the purpose of avoiding punishment. Israel was guilty, deserving of judgment, just like every human being is. They need the blood of the lamb. Without the blood, there's no avoidance of judgment, wrath, and death coming to them too. And what's interesting here, I, well, let me say this. I think that gets overlooked a lot. I, I think that the fact that the, the Israelites here are just as guilty, and it's on them as well. We think, well, it's just on the Egyptians. No, it wasn't. If there was no judgment coming, there wasn't no need for the blood. No blood, death, because the judgment of God was coming. And what's interesting here, this is where we're going to just, we're going to start to make a little bit of just small distinctions and really get into this a little bit deeper here just for a second. Because what was at stake here? Who was going to die? It was the firstborn. This is what got me. It took me a while here last night to get into this and to really put it on paper because it's the firstborn. Isn't that curious? Why not everyone in the house? Why the firstborn? Why's the firstborn going to die? What's the significance of the firstborn? If the whole house doesn't do it, why is the firstborn getting punished for this? It tells us again, Exodus 12, 12. This is the verse we kind of keep going back to. It says, for I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I'm going to read this here really quickly. It says, since the firstborn was spared to those families that had the blood of the lamb applied, the concept of the firstborn belonging to God is prevalent in the Bible. So what you're going to see is that God and his blood spared the firstborn. The firstborn were saved. The firstborn escaped the sentence of death by the blood. And then what you're going to see is through the Bible, this concept of firstborn, the firstborn. Christ is referenced as the firstborn of certain things, and then we're referenced as the firstborn of certain things. In this, in this whole thing, the firstborn was what was saved. So throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, you're going to see that God says, you owe me the firstborn. Like, there has to be a ransom in the firstborn. Like, you still owe me because I've redeemed the firstborn. And we see that pick up here. It says, it says, the Israelites were commanded to devote their firstborn offspring of every womb and the firstborn offspring of every beast to the Lord as they to belong to him. It says, since in the, in the Passover, the firstborn was spared, God wants the Israelites to have a continued reminder of the very fact of these commands. And if you look in chapter 13 of Exodus, you'll see the consecration of the firstborn. We won't read all that, but you're going to see that they, uh, they are bringing this whole thing about of the firstborn. Now, here's what's interesting. The firstborn at the Passover, with the blood applied, was spared. In later generations... The firstborn had to be ransomed by the consecration of two things. So the children of Israel still had to, the children of Israel still had to, quote unquote, ransom or, or to pay this debt for their firstborn being rescued. 
And how would they do that? Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't offer up their firstborn in human sacrifice. That's not what it's talking about. But what it says in Numbers, uh, in chapter 3, in a num- few verses in Numbers chapter 3, but here's how the ransomed of the firstborn would come to pass. It was either through the consecration of the Levites or through the price of shekels. Now, I know that sounds confusing, but let me say what's happening here. The, f- the firstborn at the time of the Passover were saved and ransomed by what? A lamb. The firstborn was ransomed by the lamb and the blood. Generations after that were ransomed, the firstborn, by what? God says, listen, I'm not going to take your firstborn son, but here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to make a trade, if you will. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, it says this, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. God says, listen, these Levites are the priests. The Levites are the family where the priests would come from. And instead of you having to offer your firstborn, the firstborn in the Passover was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, instead of that happening here, if you want your firstborn to be redeemed, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll take the Levites. It's like I'm separating the Levites apart as the priesthood, and that'll be the payment for the firstborn. And you see what's happening here? The firstborn in the Passover was redeemed and ransomed by the Lamb. And from that point on, the firstborn was ransomed by what? The priests. And now you have Christ, who's the Passover Lamb. And you have Him as the high priest. So in this Old Testament, you have this whole symbol and this whole working going on that the firstborn is going to be redeemed by the Lamb and by the priest, the high priest. And this is going to come back into Christ because we're laying the foundation of the firstborn, the firstborn, the firstborn. Why the firstborn? Why does the firstborn have to be redeemed? Why the firstborn has to be redeemed by the blood? Why does this next generation, the firstborn, have to be redeemed by these group of people in the priesthood? Why? Who are the firstborn? What's the point of the firstborn? Well, glad you asked. Before we get to who the firstborn are in this context, Do you know that Jesus is referred to as the firstborn? In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 2, 21-23, talking about Christ. He was presented to the temple when he was eight days old. This is interesting, too. Just a little tidbit. that This has nothing to do with anything on the sheet except for uh, the Jews were circumcised on the eighth day. Why? Why not the seventh? Why not the ninth? Why not the fifth? Why the eighth? Well, science has told us why. Because I believe it's vitamin K, which is needed to, one of those vitamins, don't quote me on that, but one of the vitamins that is needed to produce uh, the effect of blood clotting is produced on the eighth day. So there wouldn't be this hemorrhaging of blood with circumcision. Now the one who created the body out of dust knows that. And he sets those ordinances in place. So when you see they're circumcised on the eighth day, know that the creator of the universe and everyone in it knows the perfect day to do it. It's the eighth day. 
That's why Mary and Joseph are at the temple because they are going back to, they have to do certain ritual things on the eighth day. They're presenting Christ back to the temple here. Uh, and if you, were, if you remember, one of the types and shadows we did was Hannah in the Old Testament, Hannah and her son Samuel. And we see an interesting type and shadow there because um, there would be a lady, uh, God would promise Hannah that she would be remembered forever. And then they come to this place and there's a, there's a woman there and her name is Anna, which is the, the Greek for Hannah. Like, it's, we won't go into that one, but there's a type and shadow there as well. But in Luke, 21, 20, uh, Luke 2, 21 through 23, it says, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel, because he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, here it comes, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Again, firstborn, you see, it's building. It started in the Passover, and it's building even now to the New Testament. Romans 8, 29 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the what? The firstborn among many brethren. Talking about Christ. Who's the firstborn among many brethren? Who's that? Hebrews 1, 6 says, and when, he, uh, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, all the angels of God worship him. And Psalm 89, 27, he's talking about, and I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's a, it's a declaration of honor. But here we go in Hebrews 12. You want to know what's important about the firstborn? Because if you are a true, regenerate, born again, child of God, you're the firstborn. That's the big deal. Your reference says the firstborn. Christ was the firstborn of many brethren. But listen to this. He's talking about Mount Zion. He's comparing and contrasting. He's talking about Mount Sinai, which was the law, and he's now going into uh, Mount Zion. And listen to what it says. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. He's talking about the believers. He's talking about the church. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Stop. Are you a Christian? This is talking about you. To the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to the God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, here we come again with the blood, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You were, last week, you know, we talked about Abel. That this symbol and this imagery is that those who are in Christ, they're enrolled in heaven, the new Jerusalem. It is the body of Christ. It's the church of the firstborn. You see, that's who's spared. That's who's ransomed. That's why it's a big deal. The firstborn is symbolic, and it is talking about Christ. It's talking about his believers, and those would be the ones who would be saved by the blood of the Lamb. 
You can there's a lot of verses there. You can read that. I'm trying I'm trying to get to it. But uh, what's also interesting here is this. You ever heard this? Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Hmm, that's curious. It says that Jacob found repentance because he did it with contrition, and Esau tried to find repentance, but he didn't because it was it was attrition. It was just I don't want to have this punishment. Not that I'm truly sorry. That's worldly repentance. And just so we can know that this line of of Jacob and his descendants, and and Jacob he loved, and Esau he hated, as Romans nine says. Do you remember what Esau sold? He was the firstborn, and he sold his birthright. And he was no longer considered the firstborn, and he didn't find repentance. Because the church of God, those who are enrolled in the, 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 the new Jerusalem, they're the firstborn. Whoever knew that Esau selling his birthright would tie into the Passover, would tie into the heavenly Jerusalem? It is... The church of the firstborn, which I'm glad to say I'm a member of. Put me on the roll call. That's my church. What a great thing it is. The, the depth of the word. And, and we see that it says, however, the Levites, the firstborn of Israel, were set apart at the time of the Passover by the Lamb. However, the Levites served in the sanctuary in place of the firstborn. Remember, they were going to serve in place. The Levites, the priests, were going to serve in place of the firstborn. In the assembly of heaven, all believers are spared from the wrath and the judgment. They're set apart. And if you remember what we talked about Sunday, what are we called to be? We're built up into a spiritual house, which is what? A kingdom of what? Priests. You see how it all comes back to full circle? Now you're the firstborn. Now Christ is their high priest. And now we on earth are supposed to be a kingdom of priests, which means that we're to offer sacrifices. And those sacrifices, the Bible tells us, are the sacrifice of our bodies and our lives and of praise to God. That's what it means to offer sacrifices in this uh, kingdom of God on earth. So there's the, there's the firstborn of that. But then we see that it wasn't just enough for the lamb just to come out and, and just parade around and say, hey, I'm unblemished. Look at me. Take some pictures of me. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful lamb. There had to be more. The lamb had to die. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine taking this year-old lamb? And he's never done anything to anybody. Can you imagine just laying hands on this animal? And just... Hearing it scream and just seeing the blood pour out. I mean, right, that, that, that should wrench us in our soul a little bit because you're human. And it's like, man, that's not fair. Well, what did that lamb ever do? Like, these people in these houses that have been serving idols? You mean this lamb's got to die for them? Who thinks that's fair? Doesn't seem fair, does it? But this is pointing to something even more inconceivable. That Jesus, the true Passover lamb, spotless, unblemished, would bleed and die and be sacrificed for unworthy rebel creatures. Think about that just for a moment. We look at the lamb, we say, that's not fair. In the Old Testament, how could they kill this innocent lamb? Is there anything more mind-blowing 
to our human minds that the God who created this world, that the God who gives you life and breath, that the perfect creator of the world would choose to come and die for you and redeem you and go through the agony of that? What's more mind-blowing than that? I hope it bothers you that the lamb in the Old Testament was sacrificed. But I want you to stop there. I want you to go to the cross. And I want you to understand the weight of that. Because he had to be slain. Exodus 12, you shall keep it to the 14th day of the same month. Oh, by the way, just so we, just so we can get this out of the way here, that the, the Passover lamb was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. So was Christ. And we'll get into this in a little bit too. Might as well go ahead and touch on it now while I'm here. But it says that it was to die at twilight, where if you go to the Jewish clocks and how it all worked out, and they would do sacrifices at nine and noon and three, and they would go to the temples at different times. And it talks about that Christ would give up his spirit on the ninth hour. It would have been three o'clock. So when you go to the Old Testament and you see these lambs being slain and their blood being shed, it was at three o'clock in the afternoon on the Passover, on the 14th of Nisan. Now you fast forward hundreds of years, and the true Lamb of God who came in on the 10th was inspected to the 14th. He dies on the 14th, and the Bible makes no mistake about it. Guess what time he died? At 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The same time that the Passover lambs in the Old Testament would be slain. It's called the hour of mercy. That's 3 o'clock is when Elijah was on Mount Carmel, and the fire was pulled down from heaven. In the book of Acts where uh, Peter uh, and, and John see the, the crippled man and he, he's asking for alms and they say, silver and gold, we don't have any. We got something better. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Three o'clock in the afternoon. It's the hour of mercy. Can you imagine the Passover lamb in the Old Testament? Three o'clock, sacrificed for the people. And Christ on that day, sacrificed on Passover. At the same time, he had to die. It's the atonement. It says, you shall keep it to the 14th day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Exodus 12, 21 says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take yourselves lambs to your family and slay the Passover lamb. So we see this imagery. Now, here's some verses on Christ. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Mark 8.31 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days arise. You see, this is the problem that the, his followers had. They could not wrap their heads around that he was going to die. They thought he was going to come and overtake the earthly kingdoms. He was going to set up this big reigning kingdom here on earth. And when he told them he's got to die, they could not handle this. Do you remember when Peter gets rebuked and he says, get behind me, Satan? That's because Jesus is telling him, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no, you're not. You can't. But Isaiah 53 says it was necessary. He had to. Think about the Old Testament. If the Passover lamb is not slain and the blood is not applied, 
Does anyone live? No. Their life, the firstborn's life was dependent on that lamb. So was ours. He had to die. He had to live and he had to die. Revelation 5, 9 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He had to die. Three o'clock. And he saw him 14. But it doesn't stop there. You see, it's just a building story. The the blood was there. The the lamb had to be slaughtered. The lamb had to be slain and sacrificed. But it had to be applied to the door. It had to be applied to the door posts, the stationary part of the door. It says the people that were saved had to enter through the door that had been covered with the blood. says this in Exodus 12, 21 through 23. Then Moses called for all the elders of the Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families. Slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of it, the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the, house, the door of this house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood of the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. It's, it's the blood. They had to enter through the door that had the blood applied. Can I quote John 10 for you? That's their favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Now listen to these words. They had to, the, the lamb, which is Christ, had to be sacrificed at three the blood of that lamb that was unblemished had to be covered on the top of the door and on the sides, and you had to walk through that door to be saved. John 10, 9 says something like this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in, come out, and find Do you see that Christ is saying he's the door? And you can only go and have safety if you go through him. And if he's the door, as he says here, then you know what was on the door on the cross? The blood. And it is through that lamb's work on the cross that he's the door that has been covered with blood so that you and I could walk through that door, Christ and Christ alone, and find safety and rescue. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If they don't go through that door that's covered with blood, guess what? The firstborn dies. And those who do not go through the only way to escape judgment and wrath and to have this salvation. If they don't go through Christ, who's the door? Who's the lamb? Then it will be the same fate that it was to the firstborn that the, the blood was not applied. It will be a physical death, but it will be worse. It will be a spiritual death. 
You know, the Bible says that that night there was, can you imagine screams? As the firstborn of all the families that didn't have the blood applied. I mean, this was an event. I mean, you, they didn't have TV, so what could you do? I mean, you're sitting there and you're just hearing. Maybe you hear it across the way, screams. That would make you just, the hair on the back of your neck stick up. Because the blood wasn't applied. And the judgment of God was coming. Doesn't come close to the sounds of hell. Can you imagine? Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Why are they there? The blood wasn't applied. Can you imagine that night? There's only one door. There's only one way. And the door you've got to go through, it had the blood applied. That's only one way. There's only one door. And while we're here, go to the ark. The ark represents Christ. That's a type and shadow of Christ. We won't get into that. But it's no mistake. It's no accident that the ark only had one door. And those who entered through that one door, that wooden vessel, the one door would save those who were on it from death and judgment as well. You see, the blood had to be applied to save the firstborn. And we see multiple verses that He came to cleanse us, to redeem us uh, with His blood. It's all about His blood. And we see this even pick up farther in the Last Supper. When He's celebrating the Last Supper in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, says, When they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then He had taken a cup and, and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, of the covenant which is poured out for not for many, for forgiveness of sins. You see, it's His blood, the new covenant. It is, has to be applied. Again, let me say this before we move on. When judgment passed by, they did not open the door. I say it all the time. They did not open the door and look in and say, Oh, yeah, good job. You're doing great. You're, you're worthy of not getting the, this. They didn't do that at all. They were looking for one thing. It was, uh, the judgment was coming. It was one thing that was being looked at. Is the blood applied? And if the lamb was inspected, and the blood is perfect, and the blood is pure, then you are too, if it's been applied to you. That's what justification is. You remember when we talked about that? And Coop's not in here, but he loves this word. Simul justus et peccator. You remember that when we were going through Romans? That means simultaneously just, simultaneously justified before God, but simultaneously we still sin. But God has covered us with His righteousness, so when He looks at us, we are looked upon as the perfect, blameless work of Christ. That's the same picture that you see when they passed over that night. They were looking for the blood. Same thing when you look at the Ark of the Covenant. They were looking for the blood. Was it applied? to the, Was the mercy seat? They were. It was. All right. Let's pick up the pace here. It says that it had to eat the flesh roasted with fire. Now, this is interesting. Why the fire? This goes back to, we can pick up connotations here of the three men in the fiery furnace. That that fire, that the, the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that same term for furnace is used in Matthew 13, and that same language is talking about the furnace or hell. 
So this is the, the wrath of God, the fire of God, the Father, the judgment is what that fire represents, and it was cooked in fire. It, it was eaten with fire. It was, it was consumed in fire as the Lamb would take the wrath and the fury and the fire and the judgment that was due us on Himself on the cross. That's the importance of the fire there. We go look at that as, and, and how He rescued them out of the fire, out of their judgment in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it also says that you had to eat the flesh. It's a peculiar statement. Why are we eating flesh here? What is this, why is this representative of anything? Well, <clears throat> it says in Exodus 12, 8, they, and they, they shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Okay, so we've got a couple things here. Roasted with fire, and then we've got... Unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Now, I'm not going to get too much into this, but the unleavened bread represents the body of Christ. The unleavened bread represents sinless. That's what unleavened is. Remember, they left Egypt in a hurry, and they did not use yeast. They didn't use the rising agent in their bread. So the unleavened bread is very, uh, it's very thin. It doesn't have yeast in it. It's bitter. It doesn't taste good. But in the Bible, majority of the time, when you see the word unleavened, that represents sinlessness. And when you see leaven, it represents sin. That's why in the New Testament it says the, the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. It, it, it's a bad thing in about 99% of the time. That's why they were not to have unleavened bread because it represented sinlessness. They were going to eat that. We'll talk about that next week. But it says that you're to eat the flesh. And we draw this from John 6 because Jesus starts making statements that make some of his disciples start leaving. What does he say? What does he say to them? Listen to this. In John 6, 44 through 58, it says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Okay, so now we're getting into this. Now he's the bread of life. Now you're going to, okay. It says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down uh, uh, out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, we're picking up. It says, then the Jews begin to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's talking about his body. He's talking about, even in the Last Supper, eat my body. This is the bread. Take it. Eat it. It's the new covenant. So what he's saying here in this, this peculiar thing of eating the flesh, it's talking about feasting on God, who's the bread of life. And if you don't eat of the bread of life, you have no life. It's in there. That's why these little details are stuffed all through these stories. And it says that many of his disciples in John 6, 66 says they turned away. This is a hard saying. What are we doing? How, how do we even process this? You have to partake of his blood and you have to eat his body. 
symbolically speaking, of this new covenant. That's the importance of eating that flesh in the Passover. Again, the bitter herbs talks about sorrow. It talks about how the suffering of Christ. Um, and and we, we see this um, in a couple different verses. Um, Isaiah 53 talks about how he suffered and, and the whole bitterness thing was how he suffered all these things in life to set us free, to atone for our sin. And then also as we as Christians, um, we will suffer sometimes as well as to which we've been called. So there's the bitter herbs. talks about the suffering of Christ um, on earth. Okay. Now we're going to really pick up the pace. It says in... None can be left till morning. This is an interesting statement that the Passover, uh, as it was going on, that none of this could be left till morning. Why does that mean something? Well, that's very simple. Jesus' body was taken down off the cross before the morning. You remember they were in a hurry to get him down? There was going to be a special day the next day, and, and they didn't want the, uh, the body on there because they had this thing about the bodies being left up for so long and it bringing this curse. So they're like, we got to get him down. Like, they were going to try to speed up the process of them dying. we got to get him down because night's coming. We can't have him up there all night. We can't have all these guys up there. So they brought him down, Joseph of Arimathea. They took his body, and they took him to the grave. So this symbol that says it can't be left, none can be left till morning, is foreshadowing that Christ's body would not be left up on that cross, but would rather be taken down the day of and put in the grave. All right, it says that you had to eat this in haste. Exodus 12, 11, now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. So they were, they, they were getting ready to leave. This stuff was going to happen. The Passover, the, the, the judgment was going to come. And Pharaoh was going to say, yeah, let them go. They were going to go, but they had to be ready. That's why that the bread was unleavened. They didn't have time for it to rise. And what this is symbolically saying is this. It's telling us that as we partake of the Lord's Supper and we think about the Passover, you see the symbolism here is be ready. Be ready. And that's how we're to live our lives. Be ready. The Bible says we don't know when He's coming. We don't know. Twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet sound. This is the mystery. We're going to all be changed quickly. It says, for as long as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's talking about the coming, and it will be quick. talks about in Romans 8 that, uh, that, that the earth is groaning, uh, the sons of Christ. Everybody's groaning for the day, the redemption of our body. He says that we're to be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready just to take off out of this world in death or on the last day? They had to eat it in haste, uh, and they had to be prepared at all times. All right, we're getting close. One lamb for the household. This is interesting that there were several lambs that were slaughtered there, uh, each, each family, each house. But the way the language of the Old Testament looks as, it keeps talking like the singular lamb. Take the lambs, and then, but then uh, sacrifice the Passover lamb. So it's like it goes from this plural back to the singular. And what this is is interesting. It ties in right what we talked about on Sunday. That we are, as firstborn, as believers, we are being built up to what? Living stones built up into a spiritual house. This is what this is saying, that there was one lamb for the house. And there's one lamb for the house of God. There's no other ways, there's no other lambs. So this house that is being represented in the Old Testament, the lamb for the house. 
This is building into the New Testament that we are built into the house of God, this, this building of God. And we see this in 1 Peter 2.5. It says, you also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens. The saints are of God's household. How are you a part of God's household? Through the Passover lamb, through the door, through the blood. See, it was for the household then, and now it comes full circle to the New Testament to talk about the household of God. Hebrews 10.21 says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. You want to be in the house of God? You want to be in the temple of God? It's by the Passover lamb. You want to be in this house? There's no other way. It's the lamb. Now, this is also an interesting point that had to be in a special location. The first Passover was unique as they were leaving Egypt. A whole different set of circumstances. However, it says that he would designate a place where they would go, and it would be the place where he would make his name uh, great, and th- we know that after the temple gets established, and from that point on, that the Passover would be celebrated in Jerusalem. And then there was three feasts that each male Jew had to go to every year. It had to be in Jerusalem. You see where this is going, where he would make his name great. God would make his name great in the place that he would dwell. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle. Then it went into the temple. And then now, every time the Passover would occur, it would occur in Jerusalem. We know where Christ, the Passover lamb, was slain. It was Jerusalem. There was no other way it could be anywhere else. The Passover lamb was presented at Jerusalem. All right. Now. We mentioned this, that they were trying to speed up the process. They were trying to get them uh, to speed up the death. So what they would do is that they would break their legs. And there's a couple of different theories on this. That I, I was reading something the other day that they actually would have this, this board they would kind of put in between the legs, and then they would push them together and break the legs. Because how that's, why that's significant, because when you were on the cross, you would have a foot plate and your hands would be here. And then what you would do is that you would, you would try to use your hands and put in your feet and push up and then you could get a breath that would help you breathe and then when you come down all the weight it would close the lungs and it'd be hard so this person that had already went through all the suffering and, and punishment and weakness they would have to push up with their legs and pull with their arms to get a breath well to speed up the process of death they would come and they would break the legs so now do you push through the pain of broken legs to try to push up to take a breath or do you just sit there and die quicker that's what they would do However, we have this, this verse in Exodus 12, 46. It says this, It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. The Passover lamb can't have a bone broken. But now we've got a problem. Because listen to what's happening in John 19, verse 31. It says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Wouldn't stay up till the morning. They were taking it down. For the Sabbath was a high day. Ask Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the, of the other man who was crucified with him. So now they got two of the criminals done, and now we only got Christ. That He's the only one, and they're coming to break his legs. But we've got the Passover lamb that can't have a leg broken, can't have any leg or any bone broken. How, do, how does this work out? Do you believe the word of God is true? 
Do you believe the Passover is pointing to Christ and Christ alone? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to say with all certainty in my life, there wasn't a bone broken in Christ's body because he was the true Passover lamb. Listen to what it says. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. I wonder why. Because the word had prophesied it. And you cannot trust a lot of things in life. You may not trust anybody in life, but there's one. And there's words that you can trust with all your life. It will come to pass, every word. He says this. They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. And he who was, had seen had testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. What scripture could this be fulfilling? Not a bone of him shall be broken. See, the Passover was a feast that they were to celebrate, but it was pointing to Christ. We mentioned that he died at 3 o'clock. You can see there in Matthew 27, on the ninth hour, 3 o'clock, he did die. Now, we are there. We're there. Final push. Y'all ready? Here it comes. Something interesting also happens. It says the sojourner could take part of the Passover. Hmm. Sounds like the mystery of the gospel to me. Because remember what the Bible said, it says it's for the Israelite people. And the whole mystery of the gospel is this. The Bible records this in numerous places. That the mystery of the gospel is that the salvation that God would give would not just be for the Jew, but the Gentile would be grafted in. You see little pieces of it in the Old Testament. But then it comes to fruition with the death of Christ. That barrier wall is torn down now. It's one people. And you see the glimpse of it here. It says, But if a stranger, in Exodus 12, 48, But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let them come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like the native of the land. He should be like one of the Jews. He'd be like one of the Israelites. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. How do we square this away? If a sojourner was to come and want to partake in this Passover, said so they were to be circumcised. And it says that no one who is uncircumcised will partake and be able to take this Passover feast. So how do we square that away? Well, the Bible tells us this, that... that for he is not a Jew who is outwardly. In Romans 2, he says this. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. It's on your last sheet. It says, For he is not a Jew who is outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is one of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You see what happens? It was a physical circumcision in the Old Testament. And, and they had to be circumcised, the, the sojourner who wanted to be a part of this. However, in the New Covenant, guess what? The circumcision is not of flesh. It's of the heart. It's by the Spirit. So now you see that no one, if you're not circumcised, you can't participate in the Passover. You, you're not covered by the blood of the Lamb. You don't have rescue from judgment. You don't have rescue from sin. You've not walked through the door. And it says that that circumcision is in the heart. 
what do we know about the heart? The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who knows it? There's none who's righteous. Your heart is stone. But by the supernatural work of God, in the working of regeneration and being born again, God comes to your soul, changes the disposition of your heart, puts affection for Him in your soul, takes out the cold heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, brings you to spiritual life, and circumcises your heart. So now you're a part of this household that we talked about earlier, that the lamb was to cover. It's of the heart. Not all of Israel is Israel by physical descent, but those who believe in the promise, like Abraham. That's why that's so important. This text, that if a sojourner comes and they can partake, if you're a child of God and you're a Gentile, you should thank God right now for that verse. That's pointing to you, and it's hidden right there in plain sight in the Passover. Okay, what was at stake here? So this was the celebration of the Passover, was the, the celebrate the deliverance from slavery, and it occurred as the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb is what allowed them to be separated and set apart and to be led out of slavery into freedom. And we know we did a type and shadow on this as well, where before Christ, that we are enslaved to sin. We are bound to do the will of, uh, of our father, the devil. Uh, we want to do his desires. We're captive to him. We're enslaved to sin. However, you know those verses in John 8, that who the Son sets free. Notice this. You don't set yourself free. That's not how that works. Who the Son sets free, you're free indeed. You see, the blood was applied. He's the door. It's because of His work, His blood, His sacrificial work on the cross. The blood is applied. And those who are His are set free. You're set free. You're set free into true freedom. You know what's crazy is this, is that do you know that when you experience true freedom is when you become a servant of God? Seems counterproductive, doesn't it? John MacArthur said this one time, a free man, a slave of God. That's what it is. He sets you free. Again, the children of Israel are not set free before the blood's applied. They're not set free on their own merit. They are rescued because of the blood of the Lamb. This is the point of the Passover. What's the necessity of the Passover? Well, let's finish up here. If one did not observe the Passover... They were cut off from the people of Israel. Now, there's an exception. If someone was on a journey or they had touched a dead body, that would disqualify them at the present moment from engaging in Passover. They would wait one month and then they would be able to engage in the Passover. However, if you were willing, if you were clean, so to speak, and you did not engage in the Passover, listen to what this says in Numbers chapter 9, verse 13. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey, and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall be cut off from the people. For he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. And here it is. That man will bear his sin. Who can bear their own sin and stand before the holy God? Not one. If you don't have the Passover then you're cut off from the people and you bear your sin. Oh, but if the blood is applied, guess what? You don't bear your sin. Last verse of the night. 
For you have been called, in 1 Peter 2, 21-25, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, we'll talk about this tomorrow night possibly, to follow in his, in his steps, who committed no sin, unblemished, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself, you see the difference? No Passover, you bear him. But this says, and he himself, he bore our sins. We're not cut off from the people. We're made His people. And His body on the cross, that's the Passover lamb, so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you are healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. The question is this, are you bearing your sin or did Christ bear your sin? It's about the Passover, the blood applied, the firstborn, I wrote this in closing. It says, God could have chosen any day to come and die. Think about this. This day was selected from the foundation of the world, that He was slain before the foundation of the world. He was chosen before the foundation of the world. Any day, He could have come and He could have died. But He chose to die in Jerusalem on the Passover. Because it was the day the true Passover lamb was slain to redeem the firstborn and lead His people out of slavery. The blood of the lamb was applied to the door. And as a result of the perfection of the lamb, those covered with his unblemished blood are now too considered unblemished, secondary to the imputed righteousness of the lamb. Christ is our Passover lamb. The lamb was inspected, not the people, and he was without blemish, blemish which is where our hope and justification is anchored. You see, we've probably read the Passover many times. We've probably maybe not saw the depth of it. I'm guilty of this. But what an event. What a feast. And it's Christ, our Passover lamb. Can you attest that you're in the house, you went through the door, and no matter what comes on the outside of that door, you know you're safe. Because the lamb was inspected. And he's perfect. We always ask this, that maybe we could agree on these two points. Hopefully after hearing this, we could say one of two things, maybe both, that the Bible is better than what we've made it. And there's more to the story.